right, all right. That's the foghorn, and you know what that means. It is time for the Cavaships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, the U.S. Navy's latest 30-year shipbuilding plan and newly released fiscal 2023 budget documents led to a flurry of comments and media stories this week, hardly any of a complimentary nature. We'll dive into some of the details and try to discern the overall impact with defense analyst Byron Callen. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. China and the government of the Solomon Islands announced on April 20th the signing of a defense agreement that many fear will allow China to build a naval base in the Southwest Pacific. The U.S., Britain, and in particular Australia, immediately voiced concerns about possible Chinese naval expansion into the region as the agreement gives China the right to establish a permanent military presence in the islands. China has been waging a sustained campaign in the island country to influence the government, at times provoking bitter riots in the capital of Oniara on the main island of Guadalcanal. Many in Australia see the potential for China to directly threaten Australia's major population centers. The Solomons, of course, were the scene of bitter fighting during World War II between Japan and allied U.S. and Australian forces. The Chinese Navy on April 21st commissioned two new warships, the assault ship Guangxi and the large destroyer Anshan. The Guangxi is the second of three large Type 75 assault ships, similar to the U.S. Navy's largest amphibious ships, while the Anshan is the sixth Type 55 or Renhai class ship. Earlier in the week, the first Type 55 Nanshan reportedly launched a YF-21 hypersonic anti-ship ballistic missile, a version of the land-based DF-21 ballistic missile. The YF-21 is also carried by Chinese H-6N medium bombers. In war news, Russian warships after the sinking of the cruiser Moskva on April 15th seem to have largely withdrawn from their previous positions off Ukraine's western Black Sea coast although bombardment of Ukraine with caliber missiles continues. On April 22nd, the world's oldest active naval ship, the submarine tender and rescue ship Kamuna, was reported to be over the wreck of the Moskva. The Kamuna, which entered service in 1915 under the last Tsar of Russia, is likely carrying a mini-sub to examine the wreck. Four Atlantic fleet destroyers who surged deployed to the European theater earlier this year returned this week to the U.S. East Coast. The destroyers Mitcher, the Sullivans, Donald Cook, and Forrest Sherman deployed in January and February in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The four ships returned to their home ports of Norfolk and Mayport between April 13th and 18th. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. All right. Well, as we said, the uh, this week the U.S. Navy has dropped a immense amount of data on people uh, to absorb from the budget, from the budget highlights of the thirty-year shipbuilding plan. And here to help us kind of sort through all this data, we're lucky to have Byron Callen. He's an analyst with the independent research firm of Capital Alpha Partners. And welcome to the podcast, Byron. Great to be here, Chris and Chris. That's right, both Chris's. So. Um, Byron, um, I'm not sure any of us have absorbed everything that has just come out, but everybody's got a first impression. What are some of your impressions of this, of the budget, of the plan, of the 30-year plan? I think the first couple are 
you know, look, no, no big surprises in terms of priority. Columbia class prioritized readiness. You know, increase the lethality of the fleet. Um, you know, I don't think that the at least the ship numbers had already been telegraphed in the original budget drop uh, when the, the full DOD budget was rolled out for the Navy. But at least there are some budget figures behind that the ship numbers. Um, I thought some of the, the capacities, uh, the surface VLS capacity, intercede VLS capacity, et cetera, were kind of interesting. Um, like what? Well, that, that you didn't see as sharp a drop in the surface VLS capacity as I would have expected, given the amount of pushback there is over the Tyco, uh, the Ticonderoga class retirements. Um, VLS vertical launch systems. Correct, correct. But a very big drop. You know, I don't, I don't, I mean, I knew it, but you don't appreciate until you see it in print. Um, the number of VLS cells that are lost when we um, get rid of the four Trident boats that have been converted to conventional missile strike. Um, you know, and eventually that kind of reverses itself, which will take time. You know, obviously I think people are going to argue, navalists are going to argue, look, the fleet's too small. You're, you're not getting any closer to the goals that have been set forth for the fleet. Uh, but I think kind of thinking about this, not just in terms of hulls, but in terms of the capacity of those hulls, that's an interesting way to start to think about this stuff. Um, and I would also agree, I think, you know, this document, it's not its, its intent, but I think the argument about numbers, you know, the old quantity has a quality of its own too. If you really start thinking about what the, the needs are for a fleet size, depending on what you have forward deployed, is also something that really doesn't get teased out on this. Um, and I, just because it's on my mind, and you guys have talked about it too, the Moskva, um, the, the Russian amphibious ship that was lost too. You know, if you think about great power competition and conflict and the possible losses that could be sustained, <clears throat> that's just another factor that really isn't addressed at all in, in these out year numbers. Um, I still think there's a lot more that probably could have been said, um, maybe not in this report, but maybe in other messaging documents, if that's a way to think about these things. Um, you know, some comments in the class, a note in the classified appendices that um, the metrics were based on their primary strategic competitor. I thought that was an interesting statement. Um, that's China. But, you know, what does it say about the Navy needs versus Russia, Iran, North Korea, and all the other global contingencies that are out there? Um, and, you know, secondary thought is, well, what's, how are the changes we're seeing in Russia really affect what they're going to be able to do with their Navy over the next two, three, five, ten years? Um, so I, I'm still, I see this as a particularly dramatic break one way or another. Um, I thought the, the use of alternatives kind of intriguing, although, you know, I wish there was more budget detail behind those numbers. It didn't seem like between the, the three alternatives, at least the third alternative, which, you know, there was more supposedly more resources thrown at this. It didn't look like the budget was really going to grow that much faster. Can you, um, can you explain the, 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 the quote, three alternatives? That came with sure. the 30-year shipbuilding plan? Well, I think, and this was what was kind of intriguing is they were presented as um, one alternative, which really kind of would, would, I guess, a continuation of the existing plan. <clears throat> Another alternative, you know, same kind of broad resource uh, assumptions over the 30-year plan um, that, that kind of informed the FIDIP. 
but maybe a little bit more on the distributed fleet and the new concepts and amphibious logistics support. So you got a slightly higher number of ships in that count. Um, and then, you know, but there wasn't a breakout, for example, in amphibious ships. You know, what did that really get you in terms of larger uh, displacement hulls compared to the smaller ones? And then the final alternative was one that was resourced at a slightly higher level, but you know, look at what that got you. Um, as I said, Chris, there really wasn't a disclosure on, well, how much more resources were you really throwing at this? If this was a straight, you know, three to 5% real growth um, off some inflation rate of, let's say, three or 4% annually, that might have been a more informative um, outcome in terms of what you can buy with that amount of resources um, for, for SCN, uh, the shipbuilding account. But at, at least looking at the graphs and the way they were presented, <clears throat> it looked like that resource plus up really only happened in, in probably fiscal year 28 through 31 or 32. But after that, it, it looked pretty stayed as far as a uh, uh, resource profile is concerned. And again, this is all speculative, right? I mean, it's a 30-year plan. You know, Congress is really, really dealing with FY23. Um, industries obviously are going to take some cues from this, but, uh, and, and I think correctly, the report called out a lot of the uncertainties surrounding, you know, what are ship costs going to be? What, what, what really will come out of some of the experimentation and assessment going on with unmanned surface and undersea? Um, so the, the presentation of this is a set of alternatives and variables. I, I think in a way it probably confused things rather than really illuminated them. How valuable is this document in today's political and business landscape? At the beginning of my 20 year career, there was a lot of stock put into the shipbuilding plan. And then, you, you know, over the two decades, it, really became less and less of a valuable uh, document, at least from, from my standpoint. And now, as a grumpy retired guy, it almost doesn't seem like the juice is worth the squeeze, either for the Navy, Congress, or for industry. Is it time to do something else? If, if this becomes kind of the primary baseline in which people are going to argue about what size Navy do we need, yeah, I think there has to be something that's much more fulsome um, that gets into, okay, what percent of your fleet can you forward deploy? How might that drive your numbers? You know, um, there was a section on sustainment and sustainment costs. Um, you know, I, I think that's, that's also part of this discussion as well, too. I think, you know, if the intent in talking about capabilities was really to get the discussion away from, from simply the number of hulls and talk about what's in those hulls and frankly, you know, what else complements those hulls, be it be it land-based strike or even air assets. You know, that, that's a more fulsome discussion as have, to have as well too. I'm leery of just simple discussion, simple comparisons between the size of the US Navy compared to the size of the People's Liberation uh, or Navy. Um, you know, yeah, China's got a larger fleet, but it's it's largely because of a much larger number of, of smaller sized vessels uh, that are really a, a fraction of the displacement 
um, I'm thinking of the type uh, 056 Corvettes, you know, they're, they're a fraction of the size of even the, um, the, the new Constellation class. So that's not an apples to apples comparison. And I think you, you, you know, but that use of kind of capability and how do you measure, what are you really getting out of the Navy instead of just simple hulls? I, I think you have to have kind of a multi-layered approach, not, not just, Hey, here's deliveries, here's retirements and here's uh, new builds and, and, um, and your fleet size results from that. I, I think, you know, a, a more complete discussion uh, would be very helpful in, in really kind of setting course for where the Navy should go. And that in turn, it's not only going to inform Congress, it's also going to help inform industry about, you know, where do we want to see you guys trying to invest money and think about the capacity that you might need to add, um, you know, because I think probably as people are well aware on this podcast, you know, you don't, you don't hire a welder and put him in a Navy yard and, and expect that person to be fully up to speed after a year or two of work. I mean, for, for some of these types, trades and crafts, it, it's years and years uh, of investment that has to be made in the people who work in these yards. So uh, I, I think a, a much fuller, more you know, complete assessment of here's why we think we need what the need, here's why we think this is the proper size for the Navy we're going to need. And maybe I get it, you know, there, there are always going to be the questions about resources, what, what resources are available, but sometimes it's nice to also have the unbounded discussion too. So I'm going to push back on my partner here. Um, yep. You don't, Chris, you don't like the 30 year plan. You think I love the 30 year. I, I knew you're going to say that. I, I freaking that. love it. I think it's critical. I think it's really important. I like it for making the Navy put out some specifics, some details to the relatively generic budget documents. Uh, I like it for its, uh, it, its focus. Um, Congress loves it. Um, I don't think you're ever going to get Congress to give up on it. The Navy tried to walk that back for years ago um, and do it uh, not necessarily every year. Uh, that didn't work at all. That and, and this is, by the way, there's nothing partisan about Congress's attraction to the 30-year shipbuilding plan. The plan actually was the idea of Ike Skelton, a Democrat who was the uh, chairman of the Armed Services Committee some years ago. Uh, he came up with it, and it's uh, Congress loves this stuff. Yeah, but um, it's not it's not worth the paper that it's written on. And the oh. reason the reason I don't like it is because I've I've been a part of the calisthenics that go into creating this document and beyond the fit up. I, I just don't think it's uh, I don't think anyone in uniform pays any attention to it. I don't think um, that folks on the third deck pay attention to it. And so it's an exercise and there's all these calories burned in the in the creation, there's all these calories burned in the introduction and then nobody pays attention to it. So I, I just wonder, um, is, there a, is there another useful exercise that could be more productive and more beneficial? That, that's why I don't I'll, like it. I'll, I'll say that I, I think the, the message that this is, you should always look at the 30 year plan in thirds, really the first, right. the first 10 years, you know, obviously the first, the six years, the fit up, the fiscal year's defense plan, which is this year and the next five years, is part of the budget submission. Uh, you're only really asking for another four years for the for the first decade. That that usually is, you know, what what is coming up soon. And by the way, with the, the with the length of time it takes to build ships, you got to have you got to have some idea 
where you're going and what you're doing for the decade ahead. Um, the decade in the middle, okay, that's that that's closer. It gets less distinct. I think everybody understands and has understood from the beginning that 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 that's that third decade out there. That's just kind of notionally how we think at this time. But everybody knows it's going to change. It's understood it's going to change. It's why it's an annual requirement. If it wasn't annual, we wouldn't need it every year. I mean, if it wasn't going to change every year, we wouldn't need it every year. So people understand that. I'm, I, I think the people who, who um, you know, mongrelize it into something else are not the majority and not the mainstream. And that's not what drives, drives the hill. Um, but it's it does force the Navy to focus. We want to have some idea of, in general, where we're going. I'll give you a good example right now. Only two or three years ago, people were talking with, with seriousness about capping aircraft carriers at four ships. The, the, the Gerald R. Ford class would be a four-ship class, and beyond that, probably wouldn't be building major aircraft carriers anymore. Well, this 30-year plan shows that that thinking is gone. That's not at all happening. They're going to buy aircraft carriers the, out to the last year in the 30-year program, which is 2052. There's an aircraft carrier in there. That's indicative of thinking that that, that at the moment, there's no interest in, in not buying aircraft carriers. Um, it's not, it, it, it's just the uh, clues that come in there. What's, where are we going? What's, what's the general direction? Um, to, to, to kind of change the direction here, um, I, I think this, what is interesting in both the, the, the budget and the 30-year plan, and a lot of the attention is focused not on what they're buying and not on what necessarily what, I mean, industry wants to know what they're doing, obviously, from an economic point of view, but from a force-level point of view, the large, enormous amount of disinvestments that are going on, not just in ships, but in across the board. Um, strike me as helter-skelter to the max. There, there's no cohesiveness here. It's, it's pieces of things. Um, there, there are so many programs that um, two or three years ago were the, you know, were, were the latest and greatest, and we're all excited about this. Now we're casting them aside. There are RQ20, I mean, little things like RQ21 um, um, unmanned aerial vehicles for the Marines no longer meet operational requirements. It's a pretty new system. Now we're dumping that. The uh, Snakehead, large large displacement under, underwater, unmanned underwater vehicle, is now dead. Um, seriously, that was that was a big deal up until a couple of months ago. Matter of fact, they just christened the first one in um, in February. Um, that's weird. The uh, disinvestment of the expeditionary growler. Um, electronic attack squadrons, five squadrons. This is the this is a joint requirement. This is how we do electronic warfare, suppression of enemy uh, air defenses. Um, and there are five squadrons that generally don't deploy on aircraft carriers. They're expeditionary. One of them just made got an awful lot of attention at the end of March when it was deployed to uh, Germany um, in response to the to to what Russia is doing in in Ukraine. Um, now they want to put all those disestablish all five of those squadrons where's that where is that capability going to come from now this that's actually a joint capability the air force got rid of its electronic attack capability some a long time ago fairly a long time ago air force uh, pilots are actually assigned to some of these squadrons it meets a joint requirement that's gone for money 
What is that? Where's where, where, where's the explanation? It's all over the map. They're they're throwing away ships that they're spending money on now to refit, to rehab. Um, I don't Scott, understand I think, this. The one thing that I I think was curious, and you guys have more history with this than I do, but I somehow in the re- recent years, the thirty year plan seemed to come out after the budget uh, justification documents had been released. And I suppose there also have probably been a round or two of hearings to kind of explain some of these changes. And maybe that's, I want to kind of fall between both of you or, you know, I, I think I think the document just needs a lot more explanation. It does become a, a talking point between Congress and the Navy. But I think if you're really talking about a broader debate, you know, how does the Navy fit into these bigger defense budget research discussions? Okay. That's where I think this needs it needs a lot more flesh on it. It's just two bare bones. Maybe there's a lot of stuff in the classified appendices that would be of value. I think there are ways for the Navy and the DOD to talk about this in a more open standpoint. But if, if, if this is kind of the central document that says, here's the course the Navy is on for the next 30 years, I think it's, it's really lacking. And I also think, Chris, to your point, you know, some of these discussions, why they were made, you know, well, did why what what is the thinking behind the the change in large deck carriers? Um, is it just personalities? Is there something else? I you know it'll probably be teased out over time, but a little bit more explanation on a year to year basis of why this this has happened or why the Navy just doesn't even brief this instead of you know in this go round what it got leaked to a couple of, of journalists and. Uh, you know, finally, two days later, I think it shows up in the in the Navy website. You know, was there a briefing on this and a discussion on all these issues that are being kicked around? So we get back to messaging, and I, I think right. uh, I, I think that there's there's a lot more that could be mined out of this, and frankly, help uh, the Navy explain its case going forward. Well, you know, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll say one thing about that is that this this explanation of well, you know, we had to make hard choices. Well, you know what? Seriously, that's what a pathetic answer that is. That's just, that's as lame as you can be. We had to make hard choices. Life is about hard choices. We're asking you why. What is your thinking? When the Navy says we had to make hard choices, that's code for OSD made us do it. Well, there right? you go. There I mean, go. so that's, uh, and, and so that's the scuttlebutt. Sometimes. sometimes. The, the scuttlebutt is, is that this is the administration's plan. Um, it is not the, uniform or even really what I'm hearing, the civilian side of the Department of Navy, that it's really an OSD driven plan and that the best the Navy could do was present those three alternatives that, you know, basically show a a set funding profile and how they could come up with different things. And now look, some would argue that, hey, that's the responsible thing to do for the Navy, any, you know, any Navy, you know, regardless of the administration, to throw out a 30-year shipbuilding plan that doesn't fit into the current administration strategy or the current administration's fiscal profile is, they would say, is irre- just as irresponsible as having OSD shove it down the, the throat of the uniform leaders. What is concerning to me is, is we never have, I think, we never have the public discussion of what does the uniform leadership honestly believe the nation needs to right. prevent and win wars? Right. Let Congress decide how, uh, what, what Navy they want to pay for. But what what does the CNO need 
And don't tell me you need 500 ships and then endorse a budget that drops us down to 280 ships right, right. and then say it's because yeah. we had to make hard choices. You, you know, I want to have an, I want to see an honest conversation. I had a long talk uh, last week with uh, Randy Forbes, who uh, people will remember was uh, a decade ago, the uh, chairman of the um, House Sea Power Subcommittee. Uh, by the way, a, a tireless advocate of the 30-year shipbuilding plan. Um, but again, you know, he reiterated this deal of uh, tell us what you tell us what you need to do and what you need to do it, and then we'll talk budget. But you can't just keep saying we've only got this much money and this is all we can afford. And that I, I know that uh, you know this is what you're hearing all the time. This is nothing new, but. Where is the plan? What is the plan? What is the strategy? And, well, and, and, and the biggest thing that comes out of this is you people act like you've got all the time in the world. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of watching the news and stuff. And it seems to me like oh, I'm starting to get worried. And it, it doesn't look like we're going to have a decade of peace or three decades of peace. And I don't really care that we're going to have a whole lot of frigates in the mid 2030s. I just don't care. I'm more worried about meeting meeting a, a threat within the next few years. I don't know, in budget talk within the FIDIP. What are you guys doing to meet that threat now? I'm not, you know, this long-term investment, what world are you living in, Byron, you were going to say? Well, I yeah, I, I think, you know, to the point about the administration kind of controlling this narrative, you know, look, any administration, <clears throat> you know what, you've got eight years max, you know, from the day the day you're sworn in. Um, so there's still 22 years in any given 30 year plan that it's going to be someone else that's going to think through this. And that's, right. that's why I think you just need to think more, more, maybe different and more dramatic scenarios. And to Chris's point, you know, this is the name we think we need. This is how much we think it's going to cost. Um, and, and put that on the table and then let people debate. Uh, but, uh, you know, are there other approaches? Is that, do you really need, this many, you know, large new surface combatants, you know, could you, uh, it, it's a starting point for a debate as opposed to the starting point for this debate, which is here's the ship goal, you know, number of hulls you guys had, and, and this is below that goal. <clears throat> the plan doesn't work. Um, it's what we've got right now. I, I would hate to see this go away. It's something, but it should be something more. Yeah, it's a it's a head scratcher, um, and we'll you, you know we'll have to see what what the CNO and the Commandant and the Secretary say when they go over to the Hill in a few weeks, and and you know uh, they will get beat up by folks like Elaine Luria and uh, Mike Gallagher and and others who will implore them to tell the Congress what they need, um, and we'll we'll see if they uh, if if they're able to to do that. Um, I, I will. The last thing I, I do want to say is, is that I, I will give them credit, whoever was the author of this, that that I, I did like the alternatives. I did like some of the way that they presented information. I mean, Chris, when you and I first talked about this on Tuesday, I mean, it, it's hard not to get beyond the ship count and, you know, be grumpy about that. Right. But as you die, as you dive into it, I mean, there, there is an attempt to try to explain more than just hulls. Um, and so I will give the, you know, whoever, whether that's the Navy or OSD, I'll give them credit for that. I mean, they, they are trying to paint a little bit of a different picture. Um, I, I just, as a navalist, 
I believe that the real value of the Navy is to prevent conflict. Yeah. Um, and as I look at this plan, I worry that it actually encourages our competitors versus uh, deter them. Um, and so, you, you know, that that's a, a larger discussion that needs to be had. All right. Well, folks, I think uh, I think I've kind of we're kind of out of time. We've talked ourselves through the half hour. Um, Byron, I want to thank you very much for coming on today. Thank you, Chris. Uh, we've been talking with Byron Callen. He's with the uh, he's a one of the finest defense uh, analysts I know. Uh, he's a researcher. He's an independent analyst with Capital Alpha Partners. So, Byron, thanks a lot for coming on, and um, appreciate it. Thank you, Chris, and thank you, Chris. Now hear this. All right, you know what that means. Chris Cavis has some thoughts on the newly released 30-year shipbuilding plan. The controversies over the U.S. Navy's recently released fiscal 2023 budget and 30-year shipbuilding plan aren't so much about what the service is buying, although a whole lot of critics think they should be buying more. Well, much more, actually. But there's almost an equal amount of squawking about what's being discarded. Now, don't get me wrong, and anything is bloated as the Pentagon's proposed $773 billion budget, there are going to be dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of items that can be severely reduced or canceled. But critics seized on the ship numbers, 24 ships to be decommissioned in 2023, 53 more ships over the next four years. Some of those cuts are clearly justified. Ships, like anything else, get old, and at some point they're worn out and not worth fixing again. But the sheer scope of those cuts prompts a keen sense of wonder at what the Navy and the Pentagon leadership is doing, especially in the face of what's going on in Eastern Europe and the continuing threatening rise of Chinese naval power and expansion. Cutting today's 298-ship fleet down to 280 ships by 2027 seems a distinct path in the wrong direction. Even the most optimistic version of the Navy's plan doesn't have the fleet back to even today's ship levels until 2032. Folks, that is 10 years away. That is not a realistic plan, regardless of whatever vaunted capabilities that fleet of the 2030s and 2040s will have. I'm also pretty concerned about the fleet of 2022 and the rest of this decade. Looking across the cuts, there emerges a haphazard picture of cut as cut can. Many of the cuts just don't seem to add up to a coherent picture. Smaller scale programs like the RQ-21 Blackjack unmanned aerial system touted only a couple of years ago as a key capability for the Marines are now called no longer operationally relevant. The Snakehead large displacement underwater unmanned vehicle until now a key element in the Navy's development of an increased UUV capabilities is suddenly dead. Even more perplexing, the Navy's five expeditionary electronic attack squadrons are to be disestablished with no replacement. This is astonishing. Those squadrons of EA-18G Growler aircraft constitute the U.S. military's primary joint electronic attack capability, a key element in any campaign suppression of enemy air defenses. One of those squadrons just deployed in late March in Ger to Germany in response to Russia's aggression in Ukraine, one of the most significant U.S. military moves this year in Europe. To divest of this capability makes little sense, especially if it's primarily a cost-cutting move. Navy and Pentagon leaders now are preparing their testimony as they get ready for a series of congressional hearings on a proposed budget. They will have a lot of explaining to do. We'll be listening and watching closely. A lot of explaining indeed. Nicely said, Chris. 
Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vago Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavaships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavas. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.